I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Coming up, five of ABBA's most significant songs with ABBA historian Carl Magnus Palm. Now, don't forget, please subscribe to this podcast. It'll mean that whenever I upload a new interview, you'll be the first to hear. And of course, it helps me. Now, enjoy Carl Magnus Palm on ABBA's five most significant songs. And stay to the end when he reveals what he believes is their most significant track of those top five. The first one um, essentially is considered the first release of ABBA, but they weren't really ABBA when it was released, was it? This is People Need Love from 1972. People Need Love I chose for, for the very reason you you just said. It's it's the very first song they did together. I, my, you know, ABBA, they came together organically, you could say. It was sort of, okay, so two songwriters starting writing together and they get romantically involved with these two lady singers and uh, they try this, they try that. The, the, sing, the ladies have solo careers, blah, 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 blah. So, but eventually, uh, you know, at some point they decided let's try to record pop music in English and let's see if we can, uh, you know, get this across Swedish borders, make it happen outside Swedish borders. So, on the 29th of March 1972, they went to a recording studio here in Stockholm and recorded People Need Love. And that's the first English language pop song that they as a group recorded together. As you say, they weren't called ABBA at the time. They were called Bjorn and Benny, Agneta and Anifrid, <laughs> which is a bit of a mouthful. But it also tells you that this was like an experiment. Let's see if this works. They, they weren't going it, to. It's not like they had given up everything else they were doing at the time. Was it essentially that they wanted to promote, or Benny and Bjorn wanted to promote their careers? Yeah, I mean they 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 had they had like a team with Sting Stig Anderson, who was the owner of their record company, Polar Music, and a music publisher and everything else, and who became Abba's manager as a, as a result of all this. And and his plan, together with Bjorn and Benny, was that. Oh, you know, Bjorn and Benny, they write good songs. Um, there's no reason why they couldn't be popular outside with their songs as songwriters. He didn't see like a, like a group or anything like that, like a recording act or anything. It was only when they did that song that it was like, okay, we have something here <laughs> worth worth sort of developing. I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this song, I think, is the influence of Phil Spector. You You hear this... Uh, wall of sound type idea, this sort of river deep, mountain high sound um, on it. And they really were influenced by those sort of era of bands, um, Beach Boys, uh, Phil Spector. Um, how important do you think those sort of eras were to the development of the sound of ABBA? 
Well, I think they were very important because what those, I mean, what, what they say themselves, what, what Bjorn and Benny say is that, how, you know, we live in Sweden. You have to go back more than 50 years now, early 70s, where Sweden, I mean, we the, the records produced here, they sounded good. They were great, but they weren't necessarily adventurous in terms of how they sounded or some of them, most of them maybe didn't really, weren't able to compete with the best of what was coming out of the United States and um, the UK. Um, so um, they they looked to Phil Spector, they looked to the Beach Boys uh, for inspiration. How can we make our record sound like that? You know, that was the big question. And so you can hear, I mean, people did love is, is a fairly straightforward record, but you can still hear that they that it was recorded well by their sound engineer, Michael B. Tretto, who is so important in this story of, of selling Abbas music to the world because he was as enthusiastic as they were uh, in terms of making international sounding records, for want of a better phrase. So we come to the second significant um, ABBA track, and it's SOS from 75, which is after Waterloo. It is indeed, yes. Um, SOS is, is a track from ABBA's third album, the one that was only called ABBA, where they're sitting in a in a Rolls Royce on the, on the front cover. Um, and I chose that song because it is, for my money, I mean, I love ABBA's first two albums. I love almost everything ABBA did. You know, I have very few reservations. But but. I think with SOS, it's like the first song, the first really, really good pop song they did. That that's like an, a couple of notches above everything they'd done prior to that. Um, and you could also uh, you can also see that that was how it was perceived by the international music press. You can see in the UK, for instance, they'd had a long, long dip after Waterloo because they were Eurovision winners and they weren't supposed to come back. They weren't supposed to have any other hits, you know. So everything they released after Waterloo just flopped, you know. It, it charted lowly or didn't chart at all. Um, then with SOS, they had a comeback because it, it became a top 10 hit in the, in the UK. And you can see if you go back to the to the music papers from that time, it's like, oh, you know, this ABBA group is not so bad after all. You know, they, you know, someone said to me, listen to SOS. The production is really good, and it's a really good, well produced pop song, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was important on so many levels. It was the first really, really good pop song, I think. Um, but it was also the 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 song that made people sit up and recognize that okay we can't dismiss them as as Eurovision has been so this is a, this is a pop group and they are serious about their work. Was it also the first song that really identified the role of Agneta? Yes, I would say. I mean that that's maybe that's her first really classic sort of oh I'm so sad and everything <laughs> is so terrible and how am I ever gonna you know pick myself to you know, put myself together again and, and and move forward with my life after this romance has has sort of collapsed around me. I'm helpless. Help me, please. SOS. Yeah, so they are absolutely. <laughs> it also got them to America, didn't it? It did, yes. It it worked. It, it was top 15 hit, I think, in America. So it was one of those um, 
actually, I mean, the American story about SOS was is kind of interesting as I'm I'm uh, actually telling it in my book. It's a, uh, SOS has sort of crept into the lower regions of the U.S. charts and then dropped out or, you know, was almost dropping out. And then Stig Anderson said, you know, sent like a, a telex or something and said, hmm, well, uh, you know, I see on the, you know, in the music, in the music journals, Billboard and so uh, and such that they are uh, still playing SOS on the radio here and there. But, uh, you know, nothing's really happening. And, um, well, let's see if Atlantic Records, which was their American, which was their American record company, might possibly do something about that. That it was like a message to someone else, but people at the record company were CC'd, so it was really a message for for the record company. And after that, you can see how okay, they really, you know, they they really made an attempt to make SOS a hit in the United States, and it became a hit. And uh, you know. So, so that was the kind of thing that happened. It was a kind of touch and go, but then Stig Anderson intervened and and made things made things happen. I mean, it's really interesting because I was watching um, on YouTube this morning and uh, the American Bandstand uh, performance of SOS, and I didn't know, and it's sort of rated as one of the top five performances on that show that ever took place. Yeah, I I also heard that recently. I, I'm I'm kind of surprised by that. I mean, it's it's great. Obviously, it's ABBA and they're doing SOS, but but I I I wasn't aware that it was, had such uh such uh, you know such a excellent reputation that performance. But I think it's down to the look of the girls. To be honest, I think it's because it's something so different. Um, and obviously there'd been you know things like Elvis and the Beatles, who, you know, who came through American Bandstand. And I think it's because it's so different, but it's uh, it's it's a real treat to see that in this era to look back and and um, see that. The other thing that uh, I uh, when I was sort of fumbling around on Google was to find out that Glenn Matlock, who was from the Sex Pistols, um, was supposedly inspired to write Pretty Vacant after hearing this song. Is that true? It is true. It is true. I mean, he uh, not the entire song, maybe, but that that riff. There's a there's a, like a riff uh, going through uh, Pretty Vacant, like and if you listen to SOS at the end of the you know at the chorus, then you go so that was the the synthesizer sound he sort of oh that that, that would be a good thing for my for the song i'm writing for the sex pistols and you know that it's it's um it's it's very very interesting because you you would think that abba is like the antithesis of of punk but you know a lot of those punk musicians loved abba because what they heard was you know classic pop um it wasn't if you if you if you uh go back to what was around back then you know pink floyd and yes and progressive music and introspective singer songwriters abba sort of stood up for early 60s pop with but with the 1970s production sheen um so that obviously appealed to 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 the punk musicians as well the punk rockers because it was back to basics uh, and I'm sure you know the sex appeal of the girls helped as well, but 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 musically there was kinship as well. I think. 
I mean, one of the interesting things, and you, you touched on it before, was the team around ABBA, from Stig um, to the uh, other musicians who would be uh, involved, um, and also, of course, the video director. Yeah, Lasse Hallström. Yeah, I mean, his his videos obviously have become, uh, you know, uh, to use a, a, a word that is misused, but iconic. <laughs> I can't find a better word for it. They look, obviously, they look dated. They look of their time, but they have a kind of visual consistency to them. All the videos he made, you can sort of see that he made them, which I think was good for Abba in the long term because it made them, it, it gave them like a... A, a consistent visual identity so oh that's an abba clip you can you can sort of tell you can sort of tell from the start and he sort of exposed the group members properly um in in the videos so yeah i i i mean they are some of them are a bit corny and he would be the first to admit that himself but they have a lot of charm i think they're they're still very fun to watch most of them i think yeah, they were very natural in a way, weren't they? They were sort of showing the the natural, almost like it was a version of real life and not Absol something that was really overblown like later videos would have been. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, they were very, very natural. It was cinema verite, you know. It was like, uh, let's put a camera here and let's put them in front of it and uh, no gloss, no uh, no attempt to prettify them or or hide them in a cloud of smoke or anything like that. This is how they look, you know, and this is, um, I think maybe that was part of their appeal, that there was so little artifice, even though the, the costumes they wore were outlandish sometimes, they themselves were very natural. Of course, he went on to... Um, direct My Life as a Dog, Gilbert Grape, Cider House Rules became, you know, an absolute um, world famous director. And I think that's also the thing about ABBA. Um, it wasn't just a platform for the group themselves. It became a platform for everyone who was involved. Yeah, in, you know, no, that's true. In a way it did. Um, he... Uh... You know, he was all, all already doing movies when he started working with ABBA, but he hadn't really done, I think he'd already done, he'd only done one like TV movie by the time he started doing those clips. So they they kind of sort of parallel careers, you know, he was this this video director, but it was also this movie director and it, and it sort of grew from there. Absolutely. So let's get on to your third choice of significant um, ABBA songs, Fernando from 1976. Now, yes. tell me the history of this song because it's quite odd. It is indeed, yes. Um, uh, the thing was, you, you would think that once ABBA broke through with Waterloo, everyone in the band would sort of say, okay, now it's ABBA all the way, we're not going to do anything else. But no, uh, Benny produced uh, a Frida album, a solo album for Frida, with mostly cover versions, um, you know, Life on Mars and whatever else was on it. But he also felt, well, we need a really, you know, a, a, a new song for her. We have to write something for her. So he and Bjorn, they put together this tune. Uh, Stig Anderson wrote Swedish lyrics, and then you had Fernando, and it was put on her Swedish album, and it became became a hit. Um, but even 
you know, at a very early stage, when it had been recorded, they felt, well, you know, this this song has potential <laughs> outside Sweden or you know Scandinavia. Uh, we should do it with ABBA. So they so they recorded an English language version, but that was after her version had been had been recorded. How and did then they change that... the lyrics though? Because the, the the initial lyrics were in Swedish, and they told a different story than the. English lyrics. Absolutely. I mean, the, the the Swedish lyrics were, you know, basic love story lyrics, you know, let's, oh, you have a broken heart and I have a broken heart, but let's raise a glass to love, you know, and, uh, and it, you know, maybe we can comfort each other, that kind of thing. And, and Bjorn has told me, you know, he, he thought those lyrics were terrible, really, really corny and old hat. And he, he felt, well, okay, I have to, Use the title Fernando, but I have to build something else around that. So he he was kind of this these old Mexican revolutionaries looking back at their when they were young and when they were fighting for freedom and uh, and that kind of thing. So it became a completely different theme. Yeah, we sort of mentioned before about Agneta being the heartbreak kid. <laughs> so Frida was. I've said sometime that Agneta was the queen of heartbreak and uh, and Frida was the the empress of wistful regret. <laughs> but but there was also other subtle differences. Uh, Frida Frida's songs, if you study the lyrics that are about broken hearts and stuff like that, her her lyrics are more like let's uh, let's look towards the future. Uh, this is terrible. The thing that's happened to us, but there's nothing. For it, but to sort of uh, move on. Um, my heart is broken, but I will move on, even if it will be difficult. Whereas for Agneta, it's more like, oh, I'm not going to move on. I'm just going to be unhappy. You know, it's this terrible this thing that has happened to me. What am I? I? I don't know. I'm desperate. You know. So there's a subtle difference there, and you can you can see that in in Fernando. That is, that is, you know, they're looking back on their youth and they're disappointed and disillusioned but it's more like but it's still like you know let's let's hope that there's still hope for the future if we pull ourselves together i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, this was, I remember, because obviously being brought up in Britain, I remember this being in the charts over like a number of weeks. I don't know what it was, 10 weeks, I think, that it was, it was just perpetually in the charts was this their biggest hit it was their biggest hit at the time it was number it, it wasn't their biggest hit in the uk i think but it was number four it was, sorry it was number one for four weeks in the uk whereas dancing queen was number one for six weeks so that would be their biggest hits in those terms but if if you go uh if you go outside the uk and internationally i mean the the, the prime example obviously is australia where where Fernando was number one for wait for it fourteen consecutive weeks, <laughs> which 
which is uh it, it was like hey jude by the beatles had also been number one for 14 weeks and now uh, there's one of ed sheeran's songs that has been number one for 15 weeks but it took a few decades to break abba's record let's put it that way um so yeah so so that sold i think it sold six million copies globally that single or something like that so it was a massive hit and um I think maybe in Australia, they had their big breakthrough with Mamma Mia, but I think Fernando sort of sums up that uh, incredible Australian ABBA mania when they could do no wrong. And their records were so, I mean, Fernando is the type of song, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's a modern pop song in a way, but it also harks back to the 1950s or whatever. Uh, so that's why you had, you know, grandmothers going out to, by that new nice song by that nice ABBA group, if you will, you know, and uh, and parents and young children, so so it covered a lot of bases. That song in terms of in terms of record buys. If you prefer to listen to a podcast, the audio versions are available on all platforms like Apple, Spotify, you name it. Just look for Pop the History Makers with Steve Blame, and you'll find it. So there's no reason not to listen to the podcast or to watch it here on YouTube. So let's come to the fourth song that you've chosen as a significant ABBA song. And this is during the height, you know, I think Saturday Night Fever was 1976. So this is during the height of the disco era, which is Summer Night City, which came out in 1978. So um, tell me the story behind this. Yeah, Summer Night City. I, I think Bjorn and Benny has they they have sort of uh, admitted that it was inspired by the Bee Gees. Uh, the uh, Saturday Night Fever was nineteen seventy seven actually, but at, towards the end of the year, so it was nineteen seventy eight was the big the big Saturday Night Fever year. Um, you could say I think, and um, so they you know they were always inspired Abba were by by what everybody else were doing and they were listening to the what was in the charts and uh, and you can tell that you can hear the kind of falsetto singing on Summer Night City um, uh, that's sort of it's, it's not exactly like the Bee Gees falsettos but, but you, you can see that you can hear the inspiration there um, it was one of those songs that they were never really happy with themselves for for whatever reason they had they had visioned something else than what came out but I think it's a super exciting record for that very reason. It's not as polished as as many Ab other ABBA songs are, and um, polish is all, all right. But I like that that this song sounds a little dirty. It's a little sexy. It's a little, you know, out of control, uh, and a very good dance record as well. But there is also another interesting. Uh, can I use four letter words on this? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> Uh, because if you listen closely to the song, certainly towards the end of it, uh, where they're supposedly singing "Hocking uh, in the Moonlight," and it sounds like "Fucking in the Moonlight," it really does sound like "Fucking in the Moonlight." And outside the English-speaking countries, maybe people didn't really hear it because they had just heard Abba's latest track and you know words that could be about anything, what you know, whatever. But I've interviewed people at the record company in the UK at the time, and they were like, "Oh my God, what is this? We, what are they singing?" And they go around to all the other people in the record company, play the record to them. What are they singing here? Oh, they're singing "fucking." Oh, you know. Oh, 
we can't we we can't possibly send this to radio what are we going to do and they went to the to radio to the bbc with a play for for them and they were like what is this you know it's oh you know it's uh, you know it's a sound thing and they didn't sing fucking there's no way you know i'm convinced i've i've asked bjorn about this many many years later you know when there was no reason to lie about it or anything like that you know he said no we were singing walking so he was one of those anomalies that happens when the sound is muddied and people are sort of pronouncing it maybe just slightly, you know, slightly wrong or whatever. And he goes, you know, fucking, and it sounds like fucking. Uh, <laughs> so what they did in the UK, they prepared a promo version of the single, which was a, a faded early. So he didn't, you know, so they could play it on the radio without <laughs> that word being heard. Um, at the same time, I know uh, the, the people at, at Epic Records in the UK, they were like, you know, are they, you know, are they pulling out legs? Is there, is there, is this, you know, uh, their sense of humor or whatever? But, uh, but, but it caused a bit of a controversy at the time. <laughs> Probably got Granny running out of that record store as well back in the Yeah, <laughs> and it was just like, it was not, you know, ABBA were used to their songs by that time. Everything they released went to number one or at least the top three. And I think Summer Night City stalled you know, stalled at number five in the UK. So it was slightly less popular. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a connection there. <laughs> I think it's one of those songs that grows on you over time as well, because you, it's got these sort of different levels to it. You know, I, I'm not, I can't really explain song structure, but it's, it really feels that there's sort of two songs within one. And, um, and that really sort of makes it more interesting over time. It's not something that is, instantly grabs you but it grabs you over time oh absolutely yeah it's it's a real grower that one and also like like most other abba songs certainly the the big hits there are like you say there are two different songs going on at the same time and they've sort of added synth riffs and soloing and stuff going on backing vocals that so that you know it keeps it interesting there's something happening um and and there's a lot of compression on it which they uh, which they did because they were trying desperately to f to make this record happen, um, and I, you know, I, I think that that compression works in its favor because it gets that you know like American radio sound. It's like yeah, you know, you can hear a DJ introducing it almost, and it's like, uh, and uh, you want to you want to move to it. No, a great record, one of my favorites. OK, let's move on, and well, we're continuing the double entendre theme in a way <laughs> to the fifth. <laughs> Uh, most significant ABBA song, um, my favourite ABBA song. I'm going to say that straight up. The day before you came, that thought has crossed my mind as well. I, I will admit that. Yeah, um, no, yeah, that's that's definitely one of my favourites as, as well. It's always it's permanently in my top three. I think uh, the last song they ever recorded. Um, they were going to do an album that year in 1982, but they stopped. They stopped the recording sessions. Something was off, so they decided let's do a, let's release a double album of our singles instead, and let's record a few, you know, a couple of new tracks for that album to be included on that. And the day before you came was one of those songs. Um, it's just one of those, uh, you know, kitchen sink melodramas. Um, I, I'm not sure what to say about it, really. Well, but what, what, how was it recorded? Because it wasn't it wasn't something that they already had and went into a studio, was it? It was something that was developed in the studio. So tell me about the recording, the original title, and how that really came about in the studio. Yeah, they were 
I mean, they were under pressure to to get, come up with these songs that could be released as singles and could be included on the uh, on the on the double album. They didn't have a whole lot of time to do that. Um, so so Benny had some kind of ID and he sort of developed that in the recording studio. Usually they didn't write songs in the studio. They they sat somewhere else and then they brought the finished songs to the studio. But they this was written in the studio. Um, and it was also uh, different in in that it's like the Benny Anderson one man band, basically the instrumental backing, because they had a drum machine um, and his Yamaha GX1 keyboard and maybe the the uh, the Mini Moog as well. And those are the only instruments you hear there. They, they had a drummer come in afterwards and put on some real snare drum sounds because they thought it sounded a bit artificial with the, the Lin drum sound, which the, the Lin drum is the one you hear on, on the Human League Dare album, for instance. Um, uh, and it, the working title was uh, in Swedish, Den Lidande Fågen, which translates as The Suffering Bird. Uh, and someone actually asked me, if did they mean the suffering bird, as in bird slang for, for, for lady? But no, uh, they did. They did it. Uh, it was like literally a, a bird. I, I'm not sure if maybe that that working title was a bit tongue in cheek because it's it sounds a bit like over the top, you know, the suffering bird. Um, I mean, you mentioned but, there the Human League, but you can really tell that you know that they're influenced from the minimalistic sort of new wave sound of uh, Human League or Soft Cell um, at that time in that music. And also, what's fascinating about this is the way um, Heartbreak Agneta <laughs> sings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, she she sings, they told her, you know, to, to be, you know, to be, to be in character, sing it like you're this ordinary woman. Don't sing it like beautifully like you would do. Just just be very low key with it. So, so, so that it works um, as a piece of drama, as a piece of art. Um, so she did that, and I, th I think that works really well. You know, it, it would have been it would have been pathetic if she had been very uh, if she started wailing or or been very uh, very assertive. You know, it would have been it would have been the the gestures would have been too grand, if you will. Um, and I think it also helps. You know, like you said, it was influenced sound wise by. Uh, the synth pop at the time, and I think that was mainly Michael Tretto, their engineer, who was influenced by that, because he told me that Benny was pl playing like normal chords on his synthesizer, but what what Michael did was he electronically he made it so that the drum machine, the drum sounds, kind of triggered when the when the synthesizer should be heard or not. So that's why you get this instead of you know just chords and i i think that really it helps tighten it up so that it doesn't become too melodramatic i mean i love a bit of melodrama obviously but but it it could have been it could it's virgin on pathetic but it never really goes into to that territory i think it, it it's just very a very powerful piece of music not a hit at the time uh, which it's, I mean, 
it doesn't really sound like a hit single. It's it's a great track, but maybe it wasn't the best choice for a single. So that that's probably the explanation. In continental Europe and here in Sweden, it went top five, but in the UK, it you know it uh, it climbed up to thirty two and then got no further. What I love about that song is that it's sort of left open to interpretation. Now, forget the double entendre, put that aside. But there you have, you know, Agnita with her miserable life, just getting up in the morning and doing very banal, normal things. Then meeting this hot bloke on a train, Jonas, I forgot his surname, but he was an actor in, in Sweden at the time, wasn't he? Well-known yeah, actor. Jonas Bergström. Yeah. And yeah. then... Um, so she meets him, and then at the end of the song, she's back in a miserable life again. Now, there are a number of interpretations. One of, one of them I loved, which I read about, which was the idea was, it's not such a bad miserable life because he might have been a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard that as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a, so she's singing, she's singing this from the afterlife, I guess. Um, uh yeah but what, I mean, what was what did benny what is it really about is it about the the breakup of the band is it the end of abba is it about agnita saying you know okay we both the girls and the guys had relationships um but now we're back to the because we're at the end of abba we're back to the day before you came um what is it about Really, that that is an interpretation, of course, but I don't think that was on their mind at the time because they were just they they didn't they didn't know that they were finishing ABBA at the time. I mean, they maybe they had a hunch that maybe this won't go on for such a long time, you know. After this, but uh, it's it's really it's really just about uh, Bjorn had this idea of you know someone having an encounter with a man and and then it's kind of if you read the lyrics, it's kind of open ended. Because it doesn't say that he split. It it just says, you know, this, uh, you know, I guess I must have done this, uh, that, and the other the day before you came. So we all we all the only thing we know is that he he entered her life, uh, and they had a romantic encounter, uh, you know, presumably, but we don't know if it, if it if it ends or not. But as as Benny said to me when we were talking about the song. He said, you know, the nice thing about when you listen to it, you the only interpretation is that he split. The guy is he's you no, know, he split a long time ago. You know, he's he's not there anymore. And that because that's because of the of the music and the arrangement. Uh so it's it's a very nice, a very nice example of how lyrics and music work together to 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 create something that isn't there on on paper, so to speak. What for you then is, in terms of ABBA's whole career, the most significant song from these five, would you say? Out of these five, well, SOS, I guess. SOS because, because, because it's, a, it's a turning point. I think it's a turning point for them as well. Because this, that, that's when they, the third album uh, was when they, they had you know, to put it bluntly, they had the money to be in the studio for as long as they wanted um, and were excited at, because this is this was recorded like six months after Eurovision. So they're excited by by the possibility. Of, wow, we have an international breakthrough. People might be interested in what we do next. So we better make this count. You know, we better put our put 
put a lot of work into our songs from this moment on. So I think, yeah, SOS after those five. So Carl Magnus Farm, thank you. I want to say again that as we can see behind you, you have a new book, ABBA on record. And um, what's great about your books is they always contain information that, you know, even if you think you know a lot about ABBA, you realize you don't know everything about ABBA. Um, what number book is that? Oh, my God. I don't know. I, I, it, it's, it depends on how you count. But is it book number nine or ten or something? So what is the most significant bit of information that made you go, oh? One that comes up and it relates to People Need Love that we talked about earlier, because People Need Love was an experiment. Uh, it was, let's see if this works. And it, it almost didn't become a hit in Sweden. It almost, because it was on this radio chart that was vote-based, it almost didn't make it into, it made, made it in by, its, by the skin of its teeth. Uh, and if it hadn't become a hit, I'm not sure about this, but there's a possibility that they would have said, ah, this didn't work, let's do something else. And maybe ABBA would never have happened. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.